Well, thank you, Adam. It is a real sincere privilege for me to be here this morning. Adam mentioned that I had the privilege of coming up a couple times during the Bible study days, and it's just so awesome to get to see what the Lord's been doing in your midst over the last couple years, and just so neat to see everyone here this morning, and uh, from a distance to kind of feel like I've been able to benefit from the blessing of what's taken place here at uh, Grace Church of the Valley in Kingsburg. I've known Adam and also David Morris for many years, and it's just a privilege to get to be here and to preach on Adam's behalf. I'll confess to you this morning that I sympathize with you in your disappointment knowing that Adam finally got his voice back, and then he's not going to be the one preaching this morning. Uh, I'm right there with you. I would rather hear him preach too. So uh, I sympathize and empathize with your disappointment. I've gotten to hear Adam preach many times. He's a much better preacher than I am, but I trust that the Lord will be honored and that you'll be blessed, not through me, but through the Word. Just this last year... I had the privilege of beginning to teach full-time at the Master's Seminary in conjunction with the Ministry of Grace Community Church. And I confess to you that I absolutely love it. I love it for a couple reasons. One, because I love church history, because church history is the record of faithful men who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and loved His Word and who have left a legacy of faithfulness for us to follow after. And there's nothing more encouraging for me than to see the legacy of the heroes of the faith from Hebrews 11 extended over the last two millennia and getting to study how God used them in spite of themselves. And I also love it because a seminary is a wonderful place to be with like-minded men who are training for ministry and who want to see Christ exalted and honored. And so it's been Just an absolute thrill for me to get to spend time with those kind of men as we look back at the men whom God has used in church history. A few weeks ago, in our church history class, we began the study of the life of Jonathan Edwards, a name that I'm sure is familiar to many of you. Jonathan Edwards was born in Connecticut when Connecticut was still a colony. In fact, Edwards himself didn't live long enough to see the American drive for independence. He died at the age of 54 in 1758. And of course, the Declaration of Independence wasn't signed until 1776. In fact, just last month, March 22nd, marked the 251st anniversary of Jonathan Edwards' home going to heaven. Even though he was only 54 years old when he died, he is considered by most to be the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. He was only 13 years old when he enrolled in Yale College, which at the time was only 15 years old. The college itself was a place that was not uncommon for teenage boys to be educated there, provided that they had some sort of an understanding of Greek and Latin And we're prepared to learn Hebrew. Having grown up in a strict Puritan family, Jonathan Edwards had always known the gospel. But there were things happening even in his day and age that were threatening that worldview. There were scientific advancements taking place. Sir Isaac Newton was a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards. And his understanding of the universe was leading many to think that God was like a blind watchmaker who had just created this mechanism, wound it up, and walked away. The philosophy of John Locke, a famous philosopher, was changing how people were thinking about the world. Another contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, Benjamin Franklin, who was only two years younger than Edwards, also grew up in a strict Puritan family but left the faith to become, of course, a popular social critic politician, but not Edwards. When he was still at Yale, he was about 16 years old, he became deathly ill to the point where he was convinced that he was going to die. And it was as a result of that near-death experience that Edwards embarked on a 
three-year deep soul-searching experience that he would later look back at as his conversion. It was a time in which God was drawing Edwards to himself. And he used that deathly illness to draw him to salvation. For Edwards, embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ meant embracing absolutely all of it. And Edwards could not understand why there were so many in the colonies and in England and in Europe who professed to be Christian and professed to believe the gospel and professed to know Christ. And yet lived as though the realities of heaven and hell and eternity were of no consequence. Edwards couldn't understand how someone could give lip service to such massive realities and yet live with such a sense of apathetic indifference and laxness. For Edwards, the reality of eternity had such massive implications that there was not a minute to lose or a moment to waste. Souls hung in the balance. Hell continually threatened to consume them and only the gospel of heaven could save them. From God's eternal wrath. It was this perspective that compelled a 19 year old Jonathan Edwards to compose a list of 70 resolutions. Among those resolutions, he was resolved to think often of heaven and of hell and to live accordingly. And he was resolved to live this life so that when he came to the end of it, knowing that he would soon stand before Christ. When he came to the end of it, he could look back knowing he had not wasted a single moment or opportunity. It was this perspective that launched what has been called the Great Awakening, a time of spiritual renewal and revival in the early American colonies. It was this perspective that fueled sermons like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which many of you maybe have read because it's in almost all the American literature textbooks, even in public schools. It's usually remembered as an angry sermon by an angry Puritan. But it's not actually an angry sermon. It's a desperate sermon. It's the sermon that's preached by someone who is desperately pleading with those who are in danger of falling into a Christless eternity. I want to read part of that sermon this morning. Just for a few moments. Edward said this. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else but to him that you did not go to hell last night. That you were permitted to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. But that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yes, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop into hell. Now, that sermon, of course, is aimed at religious hypocrites. And Jonathan Edwards knew his congregation He knew that within his congregation, there were those who professed to know Christ and yet did not. And so he charged them in the presence of a very real and living God to consider the consequences of eternity. We don't hear many sermons like that in broader Christianity these days. And that's because many in broader Christianity, like those of Jonathan Edwards' day, Don't take eternity very seriously. 
Our reason for highlighting Edwards this morning is because he was a man who lived in light of eternity. He was a man who took heaven and hell, sin and salvation seriously. My question for you this morning is, what about you? Has the reality of eternity changed your life? What about me? Has the reality of eternity changed my life? You see, eternity changes how we view everything. A temporal perspective, one that's limited to just this life, says that this life is all that there is. So live it up. Get everything you can get and get it now because this is all there is. An eternal perspective, in contrast, says that to live is Christ and to die is gain because we look forward to the life to come. A temporal perspective scoffs at the wisdom of God, calls it foolishness. It mocks the thought of a resurrection of the dead, which I know you've been studying the last couple weeks. It tramples underfoot the blood of Christ by treating him with contempt. But an eternal perspective clings to the cross. It worships a risen Savior. We are gladly called fools for his sake. We forsake everything else that we might gain him. The reality of eternity changes how we understand the goal, meaning, and purpose of this life. It changes everything about us. It redefines us. And if it hasn't redefined us, then we haven't understood it. For our purposes this morning, I would like to talk about how eternity, the reality of eternity and eternal realities change our understanding of success. I want to look specifically at the idea of success and talk just a little bit about how eternal realities change, transform our understanding of success. We all want to be successful, right? I hope so. Nobody wants to be a failure. But what is true success? What does it mean to be successful? There is a marked difference between how a temporal, worldly, earthbound perspective understands success and how a God-given, heavenly-minded, eternal perspective understands and defines success. And when we have those two contrasting definitions put before us, we will see that the practical implications are massive for how we live out every moment of our lives. Our short lives, but our long lives when seen to encompass eternity. The world measures success in terms of temporal things, right? For the athlete, success is going pro. To be the next Kobe Bryant or the next Tiger Woods. For the musician, success is getting a record deal to hear your song on the radio. For the academic, success is found in peer recognition or maybe some prestigious academic prize, a Nobel Prize, maybe. For the businessman, success is defined by money and lots of it. To be like Donald Trump but with better hair. For politicians, success is power. Left and right, it doesn't really matter as long as you and your colleagues are in charge. But whether it's appearing on American Idol or achieving the American dream, our world understands success in terms of what you can get or how much power you have or how famous or popular your latest YouTube video is. For our world, the goals that define success are things like riches, power, fame, fun, pleasure. 
satisfaction. But the goals that God values, the goals that God commands us to have are entirely different, right? We remember the great commandment, Mark twelve thirty: you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. True success then, from God's point of view, comes from or is defined by how well we implement that command in our daily living to pursue him as our highest priority, as that which is above everything else as our true source of satisfaction, as the one in whom we find greatest fulfillment, happiness, and joy. When I think about success, I'm reminded of some Old Testament scriptures that speak of success. Deuteronomy 29.9 talks about keeping the words of God's covenant that you might find success in them. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, and then you will have success. First Chronicles 22, David's words to Solomon echoed Moses' words to Joshua. If you delight in the law of the Lord, then you will have success. Psalm 1, who is the man that is like a tree that's planted by the waters, who prospers in everything he does? It's the one who delights in the law of the Lord. So true success then might be defined as glorifying God by being faithful to him and being faithful to his word. He's given us the path to success and it's found in having a God-saturated, word-saturated, heavenly-minded perspective on life. How do the things of the world measure up when we compare them to the things of eternity? There was a preacher many, many years ago who preached faithfully for many, many years. Yet he never had one convert. All of his friends ridiculed him. His neighbors mocked him, laughed at him. His name was Noah. God told him to build a ridiculously large boat, a floating zoo. The world around him considered him a fool. And yet, from God's perspective, he was a success. Another preacher like him, several millennia after him, named Jeremiah, likewise preached his entire ministry without a single convert. He was a failure from the world's point of view, from God's perspective, a true success. There was a man who left his family and moved many miles away because God told him that he would be the father of a great nation. Yet when he died, he had only one legitimate heir. From the world's perspective, a fool and a failure. From God's perspective, a success. His name was Abraham. There was another man who was adopted into the royal court of the most powerful nation of his day. He had everything he could ever want. And he exchanged it all to lead a band of complaining ex-slaves through the wilderness for 40 years. He was a fool. From the world's perspective, his name was Moses. From God's perspective, a success. Another Hebrew prince, hundreds of years later, likewise grew up having everything he could ever wanted. Unlike Moses, he left God to follow his pleasures, desires, and riches. His name was Solomon. Under his rule, the nation of Israel reached the apex of its prestige and political power. From the world's perspective, Solomon was it, a success. From God's perspective, he was a failure. There was a teenager taken captive from his home and forced to live in a foreign land. When he was commanded to 
violate his conscience by eating food that had been offered to idols, he refused. Those in charge of his care thought he was a fool. But he was a success. Later, he was thrown into a den of lions because he wouldn't pray to the king. His friends, who wouldn't bow to the king, were thrown into an oven. Fools. Failures. No. Faithful. Successful. Daniel and his three friends. There was a man from a nondescript Jewish village who claimed to be the promised savior of Israel. He was claimed to be the son of God who would bring in the kingdom of heaven. He was initially received with much enthusiasm and popularity, but the religious leaders of his own nation turned the people against him to the point where he was crucified on a cross between two criminals. From the world's perspective, there was no more shameful way that he could die. And the people of his day who looked upon him considered him to be a fool and a failure. And I'm telling you here today, his name was Jesus Christ. And he is the very definition of success. His followers, every single one of the 11 apostles outside of John, who was exiled on Patmos, was killed for following a crucified Christ. Martyred. From the world's perspective, fools and failures. There was a man, a disciple of the apostle John, named Polycarp. At age 86, he was arrested for his faith and sentenced to death. In an amazing show or display of graciousness and hospitality, he fed dinner to the soldiers who came to his house to arrest him. He was led before the governor, told to recant because Christianity was illegal. Polycarp said, he was 86 years old at the time, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp was burned at the stake. Fool. In 308, a man named Quirinus, the bishop or pastor of Sicia, was taken before the governor and commanded to sacrifice to pagan deities. When he refused, he was thrown in jail. He still wouldn't recant. So the governor put him in shackles and dragged him around the city. Everyone mocked him and ridiculed him. He still wouldn't recant. So finally, the governor sentenced him to be drowned with a stone fastened around his neck. Fool. About a millennium later, 1400s, a man named John Huss brought before a tribunal. Condemned for preaching the gospel, the true gospel, as his mentor John Wycliffe had done. When the chain was put around him at the stake, he was condemned to burn at the stake. He said, my Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this for my sake. And why then should I be ashamed of this rusty one? And when he was asked to recant, he declined saying, what I taught with my lips, I now seal with my blood. And John Huss died there being burned at the stake, singing a hymn. It was 1758 when Jonathan Edwards, at age 54, died of smallpox. A month after arriving in Princeton, New Jersey, to be the president of a new school called Princeton. But before that, he had spent five years or so ministering to Native Americans in the wilderness of Massachusetts in utter obscurity. And before that, he had spent 20 years of his life ministering at a small church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And after 20 years of faithfully teaching the gospel to that congregation, 
They kicked him out primarily because he refused to allow unbelievers to participate in communion. The greatest theological mind America has ever produced, a contemporary of Sir Isaac Newton, John Locke, and uh, (laughs) Benjamin Franklin, thank you. Kicked out of his church. And for what? Couldn't his mind have been used for something so much greater? Couldn't he have invested himself in something so much better? You see, these individuals in this list, they're all considered fools and failures from the world's standpoint. And that's because the world views success in temporal terms. And I will confess to you this morning that my heroes are all considered fools and failures by this world. But from an eternal perspective, from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective, these men were not fools. They did not fail. They were successes. Now that's a a long introduction. But it, it brings us to the place where I would like to look at the Apostle Paul this morning. And if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to spend some time this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then a little bit of time in First and Second Timothy. And I don't know, outside, of course, of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know of a better example that I could turn to than the life of the Apostle Paul for someone who lived out the reality of eternity in every part of his ministry and everything that he did. And when we look to the Apostle Paul, we see some amazing truths, life-changing truths about what it means to live in light of an eternal perspective, an eternal understanding of what is success. This morning, if you're taking notes, I'd like to give you three contrasts. Three contrasts that define true success as opposed to the temporal, worldly understanding of success. Three contrasts that underscore the difference between worldly, temporal success and true success in light of eternity. The first contrast is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, specifically verses 6 through 10, and it is this. The world thinks that success is found in pleasing oneself. True success is found in pleasing Christ. The world thinks that true success, or the world thinks that success, as they defined it, is found in pleasing yourself. But true success is found in pleasing Christ. This letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote after his ministry had come under attack by false teachers. And this letter is an important one because it's one of the most personal that Paul gives in all of his epistles. It's one in which he exposes and expounds his own heart and his own reasons for ministry. It's a deeply personal letter, and it's the Apostle Paul in almost a vulnerable moment explaining why it is that he does what he does. He's making a defense against false accusations that have been leveled against him by those who want to discredit his ministry. 
And in the midst of all this, he says that we do not lose heart in our ministry because. Because the temporary light affliction of this life is nothing in comparison to what awaits in eternity. And the eternal perspective absolutely radically transforms his perspective on everything. But I want to look specifically at chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Because it's here where Paul talks about his hope of going to be with Christ. And of one day receiving a resurrection body which will last forever. He says, therefore, being always of good courage. And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home from the Lord. And to be at home with the Lord. Verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning whether here in this temporal physical body or dead and with Christ. Our ambition is to be pleasing to him. For we must all, verse 10, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I want to draw your attention specifically to that word ambition. In verse 9, the word ambition or aim, as it's translated in English, it's a compound Greek word, comes from the word For love and the word for honor. It refers to a goal that is motivated out of a love for honor. But in this context, it's not one's own honor. It's the honor of Christ. And it's in that word, I think, that we see the difference between how the world understands success. It's for their own honor. And how the church, for those who love Jesus Christ, defines success. It's for his honor. The Christian's ambition is to be motivated out of a love that honors Christ. To be pleasing to him. There's a similar passage in Romans 14. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you. Where Paul says, For not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Then in verse 11, he says, for it is written, it says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. It's the same thing that Paul says right here in this passage in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And see, Paul understood that everything in this life, even the affliction of false teachers casting false accusations against him in an attempt to discredit his ministry was nothing in comparison to the reality of eternity. And he could bear with any trial, any hardship, any affliction, His goal, his ambition was to please Christ because he knew that soon he would stand before Christ. And my friends, as sure as I am standing before you here this morning, you will one day stand before Jesus Christ. And you will give an account for your life. And my friends, in that moment, the true measure of success will be so palpably obvious that nothing in this life, no measure of success in this life will matter. The only measure of success that will matter in that moment is what Christ will say to you. Because faithfulness Faithfulness 
is the measure of success. And what a joy it will be, won't it? To hear Christ say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This life, of course, is very, very, very short. Psalm 90 talks about how if God gives us a measure of strength, perhaps 80 years. You can do some simple math on that to see where you're at. But the reality is that we don't we don't have long. I'm in my early 30s, and I doubt I'll make it to 80 because I like cheeseburgers and pizza too much. And um, I feel like it's an upside both ways because it tastes really good and it's going to send me to heaven earlier. So, but even if I was to outlive what I think is probably... My average, I maybe have 50 years left. Probably not even that. If I sleep for eight hours a day, I only have about 35 years of awake time left. And uh, if I do the normal amount of chores and other things that surveys tell us Americans do, and if I spend the average amount of time at my job, If I'm an average American, I only have about 10 years of free time before I go to see Christ. When I stand before Christ and he asks me, what did you do with the amount of free time that I gave to you, with the amount of life that I gave to you, what am I going to say to him? Is it going to matter to him that people liked me? Is it going to matter to him that I had a lot of money? Is it going to matter to him that I did a lot of fun stuff? Or is it going to matter to him that I was faithful? Faithful to what he's called me to do. And that may be different for every single one of us. In terms of the specifics of our occupation. And yet there are general things that he's called us to be about as Christians in this world. Are you being faithful to those things? Christ is the true measure of success. And this is why our world has such a different understanding of success than we do is because they measure it by a totally different measuring stick. For them, Riches is the measure of success. Fame is the measure of success. Fun, fulfillment. But friends, let's not be fooled because the true measure of success for every human being ever to live on this earth is faithfulness to Christ. And Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'll be the first to confess to you that this is not easy in my own heart and life. I'm not preaching to you this morning anything that I'm not convicted about myself. But let's repent of those areas in our life where we're pursuing us and not him. A second contrast, a second contrast, if you would turn in your Bible to the right, just a couple books to first Timothy. First Timothy chapter six. And it's here that we find this second contrast. The first was that the world defines success as pleasing yourself. God defines success as pleasing Christ. The second, the world defines success or measures success 
in terms of your bank account. The world measures success in terms of your bank account. But true success is measured in terms of being rich toward God. True success is measured in terms of being rich toward God. The book of 1 Timothy was a book that Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor who had been left at the church in Ephesus to be its pastor. Church history tells us that Timothy was probably the pastor there for about 30 or 35 years. And this letter early on in Timothy's ministry set the course for him. And at the end, Paul gives Timothy very specific instruction for dealing with riches. And he tells Timothy, don't be deceived. The love of money leads to ruin. And then he gives some specific instruction right at the end for the rich people in his congregation. He says this, chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life Indeed, wealth is perhaps our world's most immediate understanding and definition of success. And yet when you have an eternal perspective, what does Paul say here in these verses? When you have an eternal perspective, you invest in that which lasts for eternity. You store up for yourself that which lasts forever. Verse 19. There's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 12 that I'll read in a moment. It's one of those stories that Christ told that is just absolutely convicting. And yet it is also the material that makes it into almost all of the little children's Bible story books. I know this because I read it in my kids' rhyme Bible to them uh, before they go to sleep at night every once in a while. It's one of the, the stories that is in that Bible that we read to them before they go to bed. It's the story of the rich fool. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, 15 to 21. I'll read this to you. It says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He told them a parable. saying this, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? He said this, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Rejoice, take your ease. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? And then our Lord adds this footnote. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The world may call you a fool if you invest everything in eternity. On the flip side, the world may call you a success. If you've got so much, you have to build bigger barns. And yet Christ makes the point so clear. As he said elsewhere, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. We don't have time this morning, but I did a little bit of research on whether or not money can buy happiness. And I did a study on some recent lottery millionaires. I wish I had time to read all of these. I'll just read a couple. 
In August 1975, a man named Charles Lynn Riddle won a million dollars. Afterward, he got divorced, faced several lawsuits, and was indicted for selling cocaine. In 1977, Kenneth Proxmire also won a million dollars. Within five years, he declared bankruptcy, and his wife of 18 years left him along with their kids. In 1989, Willie Hurt of Lansing, Michigan, won $3.1 million. Two years later, he was broke, charged with murder. His lawyer said he spent his fortune on divorce and crack cocaine. On December 19, 2001, Phil Kitchen won a million dollars, drank whiskey until he passed out on his couch and died. On July 11, 2002, lottery winner Dennis Elwell committed suicide by drinking cyanide. On September 13, 2003, the London Telegraph reported that 16-year-old British, British lottery millionaire Callie Rogers had lost her boyfriend, fought with her father, been mugged, and been accused of stealing someone else's boyfriend. She said, quote, Some days I don't even want to leave my house because people just scream abuse at me. Two months ago, I thought I was the luckiest teenager in Britain, but today I can say I have never felt so miserable. Unquote. You say, well, of course, those are people who've got money, easy money, easy come, easy go. What about all the people who earn their money the old-fashioned way? Well, it was Andrew Carnegie who reportedly said that millionaires seldom smile. Millionaires who laugh are rare. My experience is that wealth is apt to take the smiles away. William Vanderbilt said the care of $200 million is too great a load For any brain or back to bear, it is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. John D. Rockefeller, when he was asked how much is enough, said, just a little bit more. Toward the end of his life, he said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. I would barter them all for the days I sat on an office stool in Cleveland and counted myself rich on $3 a week. When his accountant asked him how much did Rockefeller leave when he died, the reply was classic. He left all of it. In a book by David G. Myers called Does Economic Growth Improve Human Morale? He notes that even though America is twice as rich as it was 50 years ago, we're half as happy Never has a culture, he says, experienced such physical comfort combined with such psychological misery. Never have we felt so free or had our prisons so overstuffed. Never have we been so sophisticated about pleasure or so likely to suffer broken relationships. Unquote. If you don't want to take it from those examples, you can just look to the example of Solomon, who we mentioned earlier who at the end of his life in the book of Ecclesiastes writes essentially his confessions, makes it clear in chapter 2 that money can't buy happiness. If money, fame, fulfillment, the things that our world seeks after could buy happiness, the supermarket tabloid industry would go out of business. And yet so many of us pursue it as though it really is the treasure at the end of the rainbow. This brings us to a third contrast, which we'll just look at quickly. Number one was that true success is found in pleasing Christ. Number two, true success is found in being rich toward God, not in having a lot of money. Number three, True success is calculated in terms that last forever. The world says success is about the here and now, but true success is calculated in terms that last forever. Turn just one more book to the right, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter that Paul wrote at the very end of his ministry. And he says there in verse 1 to Timothy, this is written just months before Paul himself would be beheaded. He says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. In other words, Timothy, be faithful because Christ is coming with his kingdom and you will stand before him to give an account 
of what you did with your time, of what you did with your money, of what you did with the gospel that was entrusted to you. So be faithful, Timothy, because one day you will stand before Christ. And then Paul goes on to talk about how he will soon stand before Christ. And look what he says in verse 5. Verse 6, excuse me, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm about to die. The time of my departure has come, but I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. I've been faithful. And so in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. And then Paul goes on in verses 9 through 16 to talk about the fact that he's been deserted by his closest friends, that he's in a dungeon without even his coat. He doesn't have his books to study with. He's been abandoned. At his first defense, nobody stood with him. He was alone. His enemies were making the case against him. He mentions Alexander the coppersmith. He knows that he's going to die as a criminal. And let me ask you this, this morning as we conclude our message. Is someone in a stinky Roman dungeon at the end of his life who has no friends, no advocates, who's accused of being a common criminal and will soon be sentenced to death? And it's only death by beheading because he's a Roman citizen. He doesn't have his coat. He doesn't have his books. He's poor. He's unliked. He's unpopular. He's not famous. He has spent his entire life preaching the gospel. And this is how it ends. Is he a success? If your life ends this way, would you consider it successful? But he is a success. Because, verse 17, the Lord stood with me in spite of all this and strengthened me so that the, through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. I fulfilled my ministry faithfully and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's a success because he's going to meet Christ and Christ will reward his faithfulness. And my life could end this way and your life could end this way and we could be considered fools and failures from the standpoint of this world and yet from God's perspective be considered successes because our aim was to please Christ. Our investment was in eternity. And we had a heavenly mindset on everything we did here and now.